Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Kate Clayton, Research Officer at Latrobe Asia. For today's episode, we're joined by Vicky Shu, a writer, journalist, researcher, and also a stand-up comedian. Vicky has worked for the ABC, New York Times, and more recently as an analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. It was there that Vicky and her team published Uyghurs for Sale, a report that has since become a key text in understanding the systematic forced labour of Uyghurs in supply chains, including Nike and Apple products. Vicky's research has influenced policymaking and impeding media outlets globally. Currently, Vicky is working on her memoir to be published with Ellen and Unwin. So thank you so much for joining us today, Vicky. How are you going? Hi, Kate. I'm so glad to be here. That's so great. So in this episode of Asia Rising, we'll be talking about researching and writing on China. So Vicky, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your own research. I became a researcher in 2019 when I joined the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And there I have looked into everything related to China, from tech to human rights to environmental issues. And I have mostly focused on the plight of the Uyghur people in China. And I have led two projects on the Uyghur issue. One is Uyghurs for Sale, as you've mentioned, investigated Uyghur forced labor. We were able to identify Uyghur forced labor in the supply chains of 83 well-known brands around the world. That includes Nike, Adidas, Apple, Amazon, Google, and a lot of really, really well-known household brands. Another project that I had the privilege to lead on was called Architecture of Repression, which mapped out layers of repression in Xinjiang from village level to county level and all the way up to provincial level. And then we were able to look at different types of repression in Xinjiang, you know, including detention, home visits that is actually a form of surveillance. And there is uh, forced labor, propaganda, and all sorts of repressive measures that have been implemented and solidified in Xinjiang. So yeah, I think that's a pretty good overview of the research efforts I have gone to. Yeah, definitely. You've researched quite widely across human rights abuses in China. And I was wondering, from both a journalist and also a research perspective, what do you see as the role of researchers during this time? So we're currently experiencing human rights abuses across China and also increased geopolitical tensions, particularly here in the Asian region. So what is the role of journalists and researchers during these times? So I think journalists and researchers should, first of all, fulfill their duties as the writers of the first draft of history. They should always strive to be neutral. They should strive to be objective. They should always listen to and report out the voices of both sides. So, you know, that means you need to talk to the victims of human rights abuses, but you also need to talk to Chinese officials. On the other hand, you know, when one side of the equation that you talk to, the people whose rights are taken away, they have really suffered and no doubt they have experienced grave injustices. And on the other side, when you talk to Chinese officials, you almost never 
get any truth out of them. There's always those a couple of lines of lies that the officials keep repeating. You know, in Xinjiang, the human rights conditions are better than anywhere else in the world. So when this happens, and when, as a journalist or or a researcher, when you do this kind of reporting day in day out, and then you witness this kind of suffering, and then you go to the officials, and it's the same lies again. I think it's only natural that an emotional response does occur. And as a journalist and as a researcher, you do want this situation to change. I think it's really interesting, as human beings, what we do. So, so for me personally, I think within reason, I do express my opinions. You know, in my opinion, the Chinese government should stop persecuting Uyghurs and Tibetans and all the other dissidents and ethnic groups. But as a journalist, while doing my job, I think it's very important not to let your emotions and not to let your opinions get in the way of trying still to report out the truth, to listen to both sides, despite your possible frustration with the situation. Yeah, definitely. And I think your point where you said that journalists are currently writing the first drafts of history, that's really key to a lot of this stuff, particularly when we're going through these broader geopolitical tensions and you're reporting on these human rights abuses as well. And also, as you mentioned, the toll that takes on the researcher to be doing that one as well. Moving on to the next question then, how do you go about researching these issues and kind of getting accurate information about what is happening in China when their viewpoint isn't always what is necessarily happening in terms of misinformation, not physically being in China, and also able to verify information? So when I started out as a journalist, I was able to be physically in China. I was able to physically confront Chinese officials and ask them questions, but that has changed. So these days, not just myself, but most Australian journalists no longer have access to mainland China. And the same goes for academic researchers. A lot of the reporting can only be done remotely. A lot of people are pessimistic as a result because, you know, if you can't be there, how can you possibly understand the place? But I would argue that technology has actually advanced to such a degree that it is possible to have a well-rounded and to have an accurate understanding of issues in China. An example is the Uyghurs for Sale report that me and our team wrote for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. You know, we were able to sift through hundreds, thousands of Chinese government documents. And then we brought in a satellite imagery expert to look at, you know, the facilities we were investigating. And we were able to contact reporters at the Washington Post who were able to go to the factories and interview people around the compound for us. So on our end, by triangulating different, you know, media reports, government reports, and these are all information from China because different parties have uploaded information onto the internet. And because satellite imagery exists, so we were able to gather these information and then triangulate. And then, you know, as a last step, 
to ask our colleagues on the ground to help us verify. So it's 100% possible. It's just a lot of work. But at the same time, if you think about it, without these technologies, even if you are on the ground in China, how are you supposed to find out? How are you supposed to really verify possible forced labor? So I think not being able to get into China, not having access to China, shouldn't be a reason for us to become pessimistic or give up research on China, but we should take what we have and figure out a way forward. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, we're both digital natives. A lot of our research is done online and we use social media. Are Chinese-owned social media companies valid sources? Is there a kind of reliable underground that you can tap into to see opinions coming out of China? And what about some of those apps that have wide Western popularity, such as TikTok and WeChat? I think these days, because of the difficulty for Western media to talk to Chinese sources, even the top journalism outlets, they would just select comments on Weibo, uh, which is the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. You know, and these are comments made by anonymous netizens. How valid are these comments, and how much can they reflect the average Chinese people's thinking? That's always up to debate. And personally, I think it could be dangerous to pick one or two comments on Weibo that sounds controversial or dramatic or interesting and put that in your article. It could be misleading. Just like if you just pick a random Twitter comment and put that in the article and for that to represent how the Australian people think or how the Americans think, that's not a reliable way of interpreting public opinion. But at the same time, I think there are outlets that are just excellent at interpreting and aggregating comments on Weibo. Personally, my favorite outlet for this is China Digital Times. They have a team that collect the comments on Weibo that get thousands and tens of thousands of likes, that these comments were jokes in China that people really resonate with, but at the same time, they get deleted real soon. So China Digital Times, they collect these and then they do analysis and then they aggregate. So I love reading products like that, you know, where you have a team of researchers who all speak Chinese and then the comments they choose I think can more reliably represent a bigger community as opposed to, you know, one random comment picked by a, this is going to sound bad, but Western reporter. Um, In terms of platforms like TikTok and WeChat, I think the same goes. If you select one random TikTok account or post or one random article on WeChat, that can't say too much. So, a more rigorous analysis on a larger quantity of data, I think, is always preferable. As you said, these can be helpful sources to get an understanding of what's there, but it's often better to rely on experts with Chinese language skills and also Chinese research history when looking at these, as opposed to pulling out kind of clickbaity yep. type quotes. Yep. On that, how do you think that freedom of expression or a lack thereof in both China and even here in Australia has affected reporting on China? So the state of freedom of expression has obviously deteriorated in China over the years. 
early on in my own journalism career, I was able to interview Chinese researchers, analysts, experts. But I think until about 2018, 2019, basically a lot of academics who I used to talk to quite freely, when I called them, they stopped answering my call or they outright told me that they weren't able to take overseas interviews anymore, which is such a shame because when Chinese academics are silenced or unable to talk, we miss out on their viewpoints. We miss out on their excellent observations of the Chinese society. You know, these people are in China, and those are the voices I personally think we need to listen to the most closely. But this kind of silence and this kind of cultural fear is not just in China. You know, it has traveled abroad, you know, to Australia, to the United States, to lots of places in the world. I remember in 2019, I was doing an article on self-censorship among China academics. And I would go and talk to China academics and everyone would say, yes, there is absolutely a problem with self-censorship. But then none of these people, except for very few exceptions, would say that on the record. Yeah. So, if, you know, there is a culture of self-censorship, sure, but the biggest manifestation of that culture is that nobody wants to come on the record to talk about it. And I think the problem has only gotten worse because there are currently two Chinese Australians. Uh, one is a writer, the other is a journalist. Chen Lan Yelhenjin currently imprisoned inside of China, and writers, journalists like myself have been persecuted for expressing views or publishing material that has been perceived to be critical of China. So while these kind of persecution continue to take place, I think the culture of fear continue to grow. I'm not sure what's the cure of that except for keep speaking. So you mentioned, you know, you're not able to contact the same people that you used to be able to in China. They're not answering messages. I've had similar things. Friends, you know, at a certain point, stop answering your WeChat messages. And for a lot of us young people and just people researching and writing on China in general, we're experiencing, I guess, on a more personal level, these ramifications of broader geopolitical trends and tensions. How do you think our experiences as experts in this space might differ compared to other generations? I feel like when I talk to my friends who are working in this space, a lot of us have made this decision early on. Do we speak out about human rights abuses and risk not talking to our friends and family and traveling to China? Or do we stay a little bit quiet so that we can maintain those personal connections? Do you think that that's something that is kind of specific to this generation of China researchers? And also how might it actually impact our research? I know I've taken a little bit of a step back, at least on Twitter, on talking about China. I still might in my articles and other types of research, but particularly online, I'm a little bit more cautious about what I might say from about 2020 onwards, I dialed back, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I haven't used WeChat for about two years until very recently. I really missed this friend, so I decided to reach out to him on WeChat, and then immediately he was summoned by the Chinese Ministry of State Security, which is the Chinese secret police. And that's really regrettable. You know, that's the level of repression and the level of fear that people are experiencing. It is something that is really, really unique to our 
generation. The last time something this bad happened to China researchers, I think I may be talking out of turn here because I wasn't born then, but I would assume it's probably around the time of the Cultural Revolution, and then again around the time of the Cold War. And I think we face a really unique problem of we're both digital natives. We live our lives online. Our friendships are online. A lot of us, you know, myself included, we pretty much broadcast our lives online. But at the same time, you know, if you are in the China research or journalism space, the Ministry of State Security is also very much online watching. And that's my experience. You know, I used to speak really freely online. I used to contact my sources, and then I realized in the last couple of years that the Ministry of State Security archives all of my social media posts. And since then, I have become really, really self-conscious when I'm using the internet. That just means we don't have the luxury of using the internet like everybody else. And if we compare ourselves to generations before us or above us, I think you know they didn't need to worry too much about the internet. But at the same time, they didn't have the luxury of the internet. You know, we are able to sit at home and just sift through government documents that the Chinese government accidentally put online. And as you know, the entire police. Database from the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau didn't have a password, and then lots of data was just lifted out of it. And then researchers can sit at home and on the internet just read through it. So we do have luxuries that previous generations didn't have. So I guess in a way that it's only fair that we also just have to watch our conducts online really carefully as well. Yeah, the internet can kind of be a blessing for research, but at least for our own personal experiences and for you know us millennials not posting pictures on Twitter is very difficult. It than is it might really be. difficult. Yeah. It is really difficult. I mean, at some point last year. I realized that you know I could no longer post brunches. I could no longer post any picture that reveals where I am, where I live, who are my friends, and that makes life incredibly difficult. Yeah, it can be quite isolating. You know, my friends that I'm still in contact with, I don't feel comfortable reaching out to them because it might put them in danger as well. And you kind of lose. Those networks, one by not being able to share your life, but just the personal experiences, and you don't want to put who you're researching and who you're talking to at risk, both in a professional and a personal sense. Yes, so I think it's quite tricky to juggle that and also make sure that you're having a fun experience of being online. Yep, yeah, and also because if your area is human rights or national security, and because how the Chinese government can be quite aggressive in. Trying to obstruct such research, it just means we have to live this kind of secretive existence because of the potential persecution and harassment. And it just means that you know I can't talk at liberty to people about what I'm researching, what I'm working on. And if you think about it, if as a human being, as a young person, I'm 27 years old this year, if you can't. Talk about your work to people. If you can't tell people where you live, what can you do? Like, what's left is there、yeah. to do? And why can't we talk about human rights abuses and also share our brunch pics? Like, 
So good to kind of, and also just balance it out from a mental health perspective, particularly during the pandemic, which I think is when I stopped talking about China as much online, just the endless doom scrolling as well of just bad things that are happening everywhere. And as researchers, we already do that in our research. So often online can be an escape, but that's increasingly less becoming the case. Yep. So how do you think then that your own journalism, writing and research has changed over time as China, US and Australia relations have increasingly worsened? How has your own research changed? That's a really good and big question. I think at the beginning of my career, the tensions were there, but they were only beginning. So I myself, you know, after growing up in China and being brought up in an environment where I was taught to perceive the U.S. and Australia and, you know, these Western powers as just intrinsically hostile. I was really, really skeptical at first when I was given the task of looking into Chinese influence in Australia. And by Chinese influence, I mean undue influence and, you know, harassment and intimidation of individuals, corruption and erosion of democracy, that kind of thing. I was really skeptical. I thought, this is invented by the spooks, that the topic itself is kind of racist. But as time moves on, I have learned that all of these things I've just mentioned are real. And by last year, through my own experience, because of my work precisely on these issues like foreign policy or national security, I myself was targeted by the Chinese government. I became one of those people I used to think was crazy and talking about Chinese government intimidation. So that's been quite a journey. And I feel that people like myself, Chinese born, but we work in journalism and research, we're kind of stuck in the middle of these very big power struggles. And we have very little agency. We can try our best to expose, to reveal. Personally, I have done that. But then oftentimes the price is so high that as of today, I haven't published anything in the last eight months or so. On the one hand, yes, I've been writing a book. But on the other hand, I like to give commentary on television from time to time. I like to write an op-ed here and there. But the pressure is so great that I feel like in the last eight months, I've just been unable to talk and unable to write. Um, And, you know, that's quite unusual for someone as outspoken and as impulsive as myself. But that's where personally I am. Yeah. And because as well, there's only a handful of people such as yourself, at least here in Australia, that are researching these things as well. It puts even more pressure on you both time and kind of research-wise to be putting out content so consistently. Yes. I have chatted to my counterparts in America. First of all, there are more of them. Sometimes in one outlet, there are multiple Chinese women writing about China. So in that way, they seem less, um, how do you put it? Um, safety in numbers. Yeah, there's there's safety in numbers. But here, because there are very few people like myself, I'm always singled out and I'm always held responsible. You know, anything that's coming out of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the Chinese government assumes I have something to do with it, even though I haven't been writing for ASPE for a while. 
so yeah, this is a kind of catch twenty two because for Chinese heritage reporters, researchers to be safer, there needs to be more voices coming out and writing about China to kind of share the burden. But because how persecuted myself and you know other people like me, like Yao Hongjun, like Cheng Lei, because of how persecuted we are, less people are coming out. To voice opposition, or to be critical, or to scrutinize Chinese party state behavior. So, I don't know what does that mean. Yeah, and the less people speaking out, the more inaccurate information that we have on what's coming out on China as well. Because researchers such as yourself don't necessarily feel comfortable researching these things just because of the risks on so few, as you said. Often Chinese women who are reporting these things, and just the pressure that big research institutions and news media have on this, you know, handful of women who are researching fantastic stuff. But there needs to be a lot more people, as you said. So, what do you think needs to be done, or should be done, to increase accurate reporting on China? I think one of the biggest assets Australia has is not only its vast population of Chinese Australians, but also the migrant community. You know, your international students who come from China who wish to become journalists. So these people are a huge asset for Australian newsrooms and think tanks. But unfortunately, I see and I have experienced. A disadvantage at the workplace. I mean, these migrant researchers or journalists who came from China, they have the advantage of you know having a really in-depth understanding and the, a lived experience of China. But at the same time, they also experience a lot of discrimination at the workplace. I have heard a lot of migrant journalists complaining to me on、um, saying, you know, because of their visa issues, they can't get a job, or they are not able to secure a visa at all. Oftentimes, you know, excellent journalists who have worked for the biggest outlets in the world, they would come to Australia hoping. To be able to work in journalism here, but then they have to go through some teaching degree, having to do a nursing degree, just to gain the rights to stay in the country. This is almost comical to me because these people are volunteering to basically fight on the front lines of、uh, China Australia journalism, you know, which is not an easy field. You have a lot to lose by working in this field, and you have all these people, migrants, wanting to work in these roles, and then they have to pay tens of thousands of dollars to essentially buy a visa and buy the rights to work in these dangerous jobs, and that's honestly just stupid. Yeah, it's incredibly risky asking precarious migrant workers to research these topics when they're the ones putting themselves at risk, and the Australian journalists aren't necessarily researching those topics. So, as you said, it's your kind of catch twenty two, and again, that relates to migration laws and working rights here in Australia. But what do you think then? To finish us off, is the risk of having inaccurate information about China, and also not having the migration and working mechanisms to support Chinese researchers who are researching in Australia. So I think diversity in the newsroom and diversity in universities is definitely key to increase accurate reporting. Also, we need to consider the chilling effect on journalists and academics. As the conditions worse, and I anticipate them to get even worse, so there's something for the Australian authorities to do in terms of protecting 
you know, the very physical safety of our journalists and researchers. You know, what can be done is, on the one hand, for the newsrooms and universities to really not just consider, but really promote diversity. And that means offering visas and sponsorships for your migrant journalists or researchers, and also for the police force and for the security agencies to crack down on individuals and groups who are seeking to silence and to intimidate Australian journalists and researchers. You know, this is something that the U.S., I think, has done better. You know, just in July, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, has issued another indictment on five individuals in New York who have tried to intimidate and harass and silence China critics. Measures like that hasn't happened here in Australia. And when I talk to my American counterparts, they say that they do feel physically safe in America because of these indictments. You know, they believe that the FBI would do something if such things happened to them. And I have to say, this is not the case here in Australia so far. You know, when I want to catch up with my friends who are in research, academia, or journalism, you know, who do the same line of work with me, we try to avoid Chinese restaurants. We tend to go to really private spaces. We don't dare telling people where we live. We live a very different lifestyle to our American counterparts, and we are a lot less safe, or at least that's the um, perception. We don't feel safe. And the former Hong Kong legislator Ted Huey, when he was dining at the Chinese restaurant in Sydney, there was this fanatic supporter of the Chinese government attacked him and poured water on him. When I go out, I worry about such things all the time. If people like me don't have to worry about attacks like that in Australia, then we can actually focus on doing our jobs. And then more people, you know, graduates, they can aspire to become China researchers and journalists without having to worry about such limitations mm. and obs- obstacles. Yeah. I think that would be a really necessary first step. Yeah, the importance of creating a safe space to conduct this research, which is also going to create more good quality research that's able to investigate these things. So thank you so much, Vicky, for joining us today. We've covered a wide breadth of topics from research in geopolitics, human rights abuses, and our own experiences with research. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kate. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any accessible podcasting platform. Tell a friend and reviews are always appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter at La Trobe Asia.